Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So, last week, we started the first of a two-week session on education and the impact of the family. We talked about a brief Bible history of education. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6, you will recall we talked about the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 and 9, the Shema talking about you teaching them diligently to your sons and talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It's not a suggestion. It's a command from the holy God of the universe. And it's not given to a government or a village. It's given to the parents of children. We talked about how that was a key motivator in Israel. We talked about how even in the pre-exilic days, not only did education focus on careers and craft and training, starting in the home, but it also went with regard to some of the priestly development within Israel. And then in the exile, excuse me, uh, pre-exile, you saw education like such as Moses, who was schooled in all of the uh, teachings of Egypt. And he was educated in Acts chapter 7, it says, he was educated in the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. So science, law, architecture, history, mathematics, that was all invested within Moses. We also talked about Solomon and his great wisdom and how it came from God. It surpassed all the wisdom of the sons of the East. And he was greater than all of the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And then during the time of the exile itself, we saw that Jerusalem had been destroyed, Hebrews were deported to Babylon, and confronted with unfamiliar custom and mores, causing, on one hand, a cultural accommodation. The family was still the primary learning center. We looked at We looked at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and hopefully we were encouraged by the fact that here they were in the midst of this pagan society, and Babylon was the center of confusion. Remember the Tower of Babel? That's where Babylon was seated. And even though you had these young men schooled and influenced, they were godly young men, and their family and, you know, all of the teachings of Judaism were invested in them as well, so that they, they became widely known as leaders and extolling in wisdom above that of their peers and being given charge and responsibility. <clears throat> so you look at the influence, and we talked about the influences of our culture today, the lies that our Babylon talks about. There is no God. There are no absolute standards. Happiness and pleasures are the goal of life. We are products of time and chance. Sin is normal, not to be resisted. Chance and luck are the ones that are in charge, not a sovereign God. That's a lie of our culture. And as you look past the exile, you look at the post-exile, you see that there are a great number of lessons learned. Not only were the priests involved with the family in training and education in the laws, customs, and mores of Judaism, but 
you also saw the scribes coming up as a teaching class, and education became universal and compulsory for Jewish men and boys during this time. Matter of fact, Simon ben Shittak was the uh, brother of Queen Alexandra, and he was the first one to, to declare elementary education compulsory. Philo, the first century AD Jewish philosopher, called the synagogues houses of instruction. Joshua ben Gamala, who was a high priest about 63 AD, he established that teachers should be appointed for every district and children should be brought to the appointed teachers at the age of six or seven years. And then, of course, we talk about Paul. And remember, Festus said, your great learning. Paul was recognized as an incredible scholar. He was raised in the school of who? Who was the teacher that he was under? Gamaliel, right? All right, so brilliant man. And so you see the rise of the Christian church, and the Christian church had a great role on education. Greeks and Romans only educated the elite, but literary, primary, secondary, and higher education were undeniable catalysts in the birth and development of Western civilization. It was a Christian church that influenced it, starting with Augustine, about 350 AD, who ensured that the cohesive culture was developed based on logic, language, rational knowledge, because we are made in the image of God. As a result, the medieval church gave birth to the colleges and universities. So you have um, uh, Oxford University. Uh, you have the college established by uh, the Celtic preacher St. Illid, uh, St. Andrews, all of these, uh, the University of Edinburgh. You know, these were all developed because of Christian people and beliefs. And then we moved into circa 1500s, during the time of the Reformation. And Martin Luther, of course, you know, was a priest, and he called for the overhaul of education. Matter of fact, I think I, you may, might remember a quote. I said, uh, Martin Luther said this, I am much afraid that schools will prove to be great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not increasingly occupied with the word of God must become corrupt. And that's indeed the case. And it shortly happened after the Reformation period that this corruption began to creep in. Now we all know that the pilgrims left England for religious persecution, right? But what was the reason why we talked about last week? Why did they leave Holland? Their kids were not going to retain not only their language, but the parents were not allowed to educate their children. And that's why they left. Now, back in England at that time, there were schools that were raising up for the poor. They were called pauper schools, which in time became the public schools, right? So the pilgrims coming over here in 1642, they passed a law requiring everyone should be teaching their children to read at home, and if they didn't, you could be fined 20 shillings. They went further. In 1647, they passed a law. There was an act. Does anybody remember the name of the act? It was called the Old Satan Deluder Act. And it became the basis for the first compulsory education in the United States. <clears throat> And, again, a great quote. 
it being one of the chief projects of that old deluder Satan to keep man from the knowledge of the scriptures and to that end that learning may, be, may not be buried in the grave of our forefathers, it is therefore ordered that every township within this jurisdiction after the Lord hath increased them to the number of 50 householders shall then forthwith appoint one within their town to teach all such children as shall resort to him. So, in only 17 years, they developed a com comprehensive education system from six years old up through the university. Yay, Puritans. Yes! These guys rocked. Gotta love the Puritans. Who did not only wear black and white, by the way. Purples and reds. Look it up. True fact. As opposed to a fake fact. Or false news. So, in America, the first 123 Colleges and universities, including Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, were founded, funded, and flourished as educational ministries of the church. Now, last week we talked about the fact that while there were other educational efforts throughout other countries, you know, being a Westerner, myself, ourselves, most of us, uh, we are bringing this from the historic perspective of Western education and the influence of the church upon Western education. Apparently some of us don't like to be educated. Then the Sunday School Movement. Remember we talked about this, how Christian people were very concerned for the uneducated youth in that industrial age where kids were in factories not being taught. So on Sunday, up to five hours were being invested by Christian people in teaching this you know, generation of children. Within the first 20 years, there were 200,000 involved in the Sunday school movement in England. And then within the first 50 years, it went up to 2 million children. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, the effects of the Christian church on that. Well, today we pick up, in the early 1800s, this handsome fellow, Horace Mann. The public school system in America was controversial throughout its history, um, but during the progressive area, reformers set to work establishing free schools and mandatory education for everyone based upon the old Satan Deluder Act. In 1838, this handsome fellow with his jaunty bow tie founded the Common School Journal, and he had six principles. First, public school, uh, the public should no longer remain ignorant. Everybody cool with that? Okay, good. Number two, education should be paid for, controlled, and sustained by an interested public who would benefit from educated people. Everybody nodding their heads? Okay, you still with me? Good. Number three, education will be best provided in schools that embrace children from a variety of backgrounds. Diversity! Nobody's shaking their head, right? Let's keep going. Number four, that this education must be non-sectarian. Okay, people are cautiously saying, okay, where's this going? Number five, that this education must be taught by the spirit, methods, and discipline of a free society. Right, good. And six, education should be provided by well-trained professional teachers. All good stuff, right? Yeah, okay. Well, he uh, worked to provide better cooked schoolhouses, uh, longer school years until 16 years old, higher pay for teachers, and a wider curriculum. But there were some underpinnings with Mr. Mann. And that came out with uh, the impact 
that we'll talk about in a little bit. Now, of course, you all recognize that handsome fellow, Mr. William Carey, the father of modern missions. That's what F-O-M-M stands for. <clears throat> now, he had the translation of the scriptures. I guess I mixed, missed, messed that up there. Okay, there we go. Uh, he was deeply involved in the translation of scriptures. Here you see a uh, front coverlet for his translation of uh, the scriptures into Bengali, the fifth largest language on the earth. Right? Uh, he also was responsible for starting uh, the school in Sarampur, which still stands today, and there's still a Christian memory within that school. It offered divinity degrees, and um, he was deeply involved, as you know, in affecting the culture of that day, not only eliminating the practice of seti, the emolliation or uh, burial of widows when their husbands died in order to take their money, but also he was involved in the end of children's sacrifices. Not the sacrifices that children would give, but the sacrifices of babies. There are nine schools that today are named after William Carey, who also began the education of youth. Elementary education in India started under William Carey. And he also started the education of girls which was a radical thought at the time. At his own cost in 1794, he opened what was the first primary school in all of India. This was an amazing man. Not only was he involved in horticulture um, and translation of up to 40 different languages and dialects. Isn't that amazing? Even through a fire that took, that took down his print shop and destroyed many of the manuscripts and polyglot uh, dictionaries. He kept going. God did an amazing work with this man. But Christian missionaries across the globe, this is just reflective of the education that's involved. Those of us who understand what Rafiki does, right? Again, they are dedicated to education. And it's a great, great thing. Now, in around that same time, in the mid-19th century, you have my homeboy Chuck, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was again deeply involved in education. A pastor's college founded in 1857, built by Spurgeon and was renamed Spurgeon's College in 1923 when it moved to its present building. You see it there in the overhead. He worked with Charles Montague, who began a labor of love along the poor people of the Spitalfields. They bought an old cow shed. They disinfected it whitewashed it, and began teaching the poor of that area. Of course, you'll probably also remember that Spurgeon was involved with the Stockwell Orphanage, where thousands of children were not only fed, nurtured, but they were educated, and many of them went into Christian work and the mission field. The Metropolitan Tabernacle arranged for provisions of new schools for the young. His wife, Susanna Spurgeon, developed a book fund, and that book fund provided books to impoverished pastors and leaders throughout Europe. It was an amazing work. So, the Cole Portage Society employed up to 50 men who provided sound literature to households while also comforting the sick and infirm. The Christian church has an amazing impact upon education. It's a great source of encouragement. Unfortunately, 
we lost our mores. Through the progressive era, there was a general, gradual secularization of education throughout Western civilization. In the early 20th century, vast waves of immigration, primarily from Europe to the U.S., brought millions of Irish, Italian, Catholic, German, and other European families to the U.S. Now, the educational leaders of that progressive day uh, saw that the public schools, which were often called the common schools, was a mechanism for training and assimilating and indoctrinating children into our culture. The melting pot, right? So there were key people involved in this. F.W. Parker. He was the so-called father of the progressive education and inspiration for John Dewey. How many of you have heard of John Dewey? Okay. He told the 1985 convention of the North uh, National Education Association, I think you have your quote here on your paper, that the child is not in school for knowledge. He is there to live and put his life nurtured in the school into the community. Family, home, and religious faith must give way to a grander vision for a society that is cast by the state. Now, his disciple, John Dewey, following up with that, advocated a radically secular vision for public schools and the larger public culture. His concept of a humanistic faith, stripped of all supernatural claims, doctrines, and theological attributes, would replace Christianity as the dominant culture-shaping worldview. And again, you have a quote from Mr. Dewey here. Here are all the elements for a religious faith that shall not be confined to sect, class, or race. Such a faith has always been the common faith of mankind. It remains for us to make it explicit and militant. And I would say, by and large, this man was pretty successful in predicting what would be happening. It took longer than he expected, but the secularist faith is certainly explicit and militant. Now, this is not equally true in all places and in all public schools. Now, I mentioned when we moved to Evansville, um, our kids had been involved in a Lutheran church in Saginaw, Michigan. They had a school there, and we had our kids in that school. We did not like what was happening in the public schools and I'll tell you the story about that separately sometime. Uh, we put our kids in Lutheran schools. When we moved down here, we did quite a bit of research, talked to quite a number of people, and as a family, we felt comfortable that there was a strong enough Christian memory and influence in the area that we put our children in public schools. So, the erosion of the effects and the impact of the Christian church upon Public education is not seen equally in all places. But I think we know that, right? We've seen examples of that in the news. As a rule, schools in more rural areas with, less, with local political control more concentrated in the hands of parents, the effect of the educational revolution, the non-Christian educational revolution, are less evident. In some school systems, the majority of teachers, administration, and students share an outlook that is at least respectful and friendly toward Christianity and conservative moral values. 
Not everybody agrees with that. There are many people dedicated to Christian homeschooling efforts. And there's a strong Christian school movement as well. And each of us will prayerfully and carefully deliberate on these issues. In, other pla- in some places, the situation is markedly different. In many metro school districts, the schools have become engines for the indoctrination of the young. That indoctrination pervades not only the more recognizable aspects of radical sex education and so-called health education, but other aspects of the curriculum as well. Unless something revolutionary reverses these trends, this will be the shape of the future. So, looking at where we are today, again, in the public school uh, environment, I would like to point out some quotes that are on your uh, handout. Barker Dewey, the NEA in their own words. There are a few quotes here. This is from the 2012 to 2013 convention of the NEA. The first quote, the NEA pushes educational programs that increase acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle regardless of the parents' views. Books like Two Kings, Heather Has Two Mommies, Right? That's part of, the, part of the library and it's part of the recommended reading. Look at this quote. Plans, activities, and programs must increase respect, understanding, acceptance, acceptance, and sensitivity toward individuals and groups in a diverse society composed of such group as gays, lesbians, bisexual, transgender person. Such plans, activities, and programs must encourage all members of the educational community to examine assumptions and prejudices, including, but not limited to, Racism, Sexism, and Homophobia. That was their publication on racism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identification discrimination. They believe government schools should supply family planning instructions. The next quote, and this is on their section on comprehensive social health, uh, school health, social, and psychological programs. The NEA believes that every child should have direct and confident access, confidential access to comprehensive health, social, psychological programs and services. The association also believes that schools should provide family planning, counseling, and access to birth control methods, which of course will include abortion. This, is, this goes beyond reading, writing, and arithmetic, doesn't it? Next quote. The NEA opposes parental efforts to restrict obscene and offensive books. And here's what they say under the selection and challenges of materials and teaching techniques. The association deplores pre-publishing censorship, book-burning crusades. Why don't they just put witch hunts in there? I mean, if you're going to put an emotionally charged word in, why don't you put Nazi youth in there? Really, that's a, that's a buzzword. You know, that's, that's just, that, those words are put in there just to evoke a guttural response. And attempts to ban books from school library, media centers, and school curricula. The agenda is pretty plain, isn't it? Now, granted, you know, we have godly Christian teachers in our midst, and we're going to have them come up here in a little bit. Not everybody within the public school system believes and espouses this. But this is the pressure that some of our godly teachers may be under. Leslie Newbig says, the transmission of nat- traditional wisdom in families from the old to the young is replaced by systems of education organized by the state and designed to shape young minds toward the future that is being planned. 
And it's not just, it's not just elementary schools, middle schools, junior highs, and high schools. This impacts Christian schools as well. Azusa Pacific University, a female professor and former chairman of the theology department, announced her intention to become a man. She was shocked when the Christian University found her announcement incompatible with their moral code. Just a few days later, California Baptist University in Riverside made national headlines when the school discovered that a male student had appeared in the media claiming a new identity as a young transgender woman. Given California law and the government's non-discrimination policies, both institutions needed to play legal defense. Many Christian colleges assumed losing accreditation was the most likely outcome of holding to the historical and biblical teaching on sexuality. The New England Association of Schools and Colleges discussed whether Gordon College's traditional inclusion of homosexual practice as a forbidden activity in its statement on life and conduct was contrary to the commission's standard for accreditation. Our daughter Kirsten went to Gordon College for two years. And Gordon College was vacillating on this issue. That's how great the pressure was. With seven words, it is going to be an issue, quote unquote, it is going to be an issue, the U.S. government signaled to Orthodox Christian colleges and universities that if they don't drop their opposition to same-sex marriage, they will lose their tax-exempt status. It's not about taxes. It's not even about tax-exempt status. It's about government coercion of belief. Can anybody say separation of church and state? You're imposing your beliefs upon me? This is dangerous. It's not just sex. The separation of fact and value is one of the central features of contemporary academic language. Professor, and I'm going to apologize, I'm going to butcher his name, Budzewski of the University of Texas notes, we know as a matter of fact what the weight of a cesium atom is, but we are told that a judgment that murder is evil is simply a matter of opinion with no factual basis. Thus we are told to look at science as a way of knowing objective truth, but then we are instructed that can be no objective reality when it comes to matters of morality. This goes a long way explaining why a university professor would recently lament the fact that his students were reluctant to identify the Nazi atrocities in the Holocaust as evil. It's the erosion of truth. Remember one of our first classes together? The removal of absolutes? So, wow. My clicker's not working. There we go. How do we respond? How do we respond? Wrong ideas have wrong consequences. Who am I? If I am nothing, then I have no respect for human life. If I don't know where I'm coming from and where I'm going, I'm going to have a culture steeped in pessimism, despair, and chaos. 
But the scriptures answer these questions. Who am I? I am made in the image of God, bear his likeness, and I'm the crown of his creation. Where do we come from? What's the biblical answer to that? Where do we come from? We're created by God. We're created by God. Right? Does he have a purpose for us? Yes, Yes, he definitely has a purpose for us. Where are we going? What's the end of our life? What's our purpose in life? To please God, to learn how to be pleasing to Him in all aspects, right? These ideas have consequences. Look at the uh, two quotes here. I gave you two longer quotes. I'm going to have uh, someone read The Rise of Puritanism. Who will read that for us? Nice and loud. Ben, Galant, why don't you read that for us? Thank you for volunteering. They have a way of presently taking possession of the earth. Now, a longer quote. Who's brave enough to read the Taking Dominion quote from Mr. Chansky? Nice and loud. Don't be shy, because I'll volunteer somebody. Blake. So why education? Why? Is it just to get good jobs, good grades, graduate? No. The basis of Christian education and a biblical Christian education is not just academics and job skills. It is academics, excellence, and job skills developed in the context of godly living. We go to school to investigate God's word, God's works, and God's ways. On this discovery of God and his creation, we then take our responsible positions as co-regents, kings, priests, teachers within God's world. Each one of us is called in some aspect, whether it's to our own children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our co-workers, to be channels of communication concerning a biblical view and a biblical mindset. With that in mind, it is time to act. It's time to act. In the age of encroaching barbarianism, now is the time for the Christian church to reassert and reclaim its educational role and responsibility. 
Our responsibility is not completed when we've come to terms with the current secular disaster and described its consequences, not by a long shot. Our responsibility is to remind and instruct and equip parents of their urgent responsibility to motivate our church and other churches to action and faithful response and to awaken the Christian mind in this generation. If we fail at this task, generations to follow will know darkness rather than light. The question for a Christian parent is, how do we carry out God's command concerning the education of our children? For some, the answer is clearly homeschooling. Several educational institutions have provided all the tools necessary for a parent to provide a good education right at home. And there are people in this fellowship that have those tools and can help you if you're convinced that this is the way that God is leading you to go. <clears throat> for others, the answer may be the help of a Christian school. Let, let's, let's see a show of hands. How many of you are involved in homeschooling? Okay, look around. How many of you are involved in Christian education, Christian schools? <clears throat> or past tense, yes. <laughs> okay, how many of you have your children or your grandchildren in public schools? Okay. There you go. So you have, we have a variety here. We have a wide variety. You know? <clears throat> there are some that have their children in public schools. Perhaps these parents have the toughest job of educating their children according to God's order. Now, we did, at times, have to countermand what was being taught. In the Christian school and in the public school. Because in the German... Lutheran school that we sent our children to in Saginaw, Michigan, they didn't believe in some of the things that Martin Luther taught. <laughs> and we said, actually, kids, look what Martin Luther taught. <laughs> and in the public school, we ran into that as well. My favorite example was when I was, uh, Daniel was in his senior year, and he was just, he was just, he was just phoning it in. And he was getting B's. And he got an occasional C, and I said, okay, stop this. You're getting all A's next semester, or you're not participating in any extracurricular activities, which he loved. He went back, told his one teacher, and the teacher said, oh, your father's insane. <laughs> it's my favorite example. <laughs> so <clears throat> people who are involved in public school must know that what is being taught and counter false teaching that would rob their children of the underpinnings of a solid, intelligent Christian faith. So, how do we step into today's chaos? Well, I've got a number of suggestions uh, that are here. And this involves education across the board. We should formally commission our teachers in our church to see their vocation as ministry. We should bless students and educators. Start with back-to-school supply programs, weekly food distribution packs, Prayer, prayer before they go back to school, uh, get on their campuses uh, on weekends or after hours. Uh, the Mill City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, has a congregation that meets in the local public school. They discovered that the school students often went home on the weekends without healthy meals. They developed a program for this to bless their students, preparing meals for a few students. It became a citywide program based in the churches. And it became an opportunity for ministry and the gospel to go out. Inglewood Christian Church in Indianapolis had a daycare, um, a high-quality preschool, which went out of its way to serve low-income families. 
the state of Indiana saw this incredible program and used it as a pilot program to encourage other parts of the state as well. We could adopt a school. Besides blessing students and educators, we could adopt a school, a grade level or classroom. We could volunteer within the school. You go to any school administrator and you ask for volunteers. At this time, I'm going to ask uh, Peter and Bo to come on up. I'm going to keep rambling on while these guys come up here. We could teach the Bible in a public school or in a private school or in a Christian school. Make that offer. You know, there are, some of you have a vast array of biblical knowledge. Um, start an after-school program or a summer enrichment program outside of VBS. You know, we could have ministries for families with special needs. We could um, reach out to single moms or single dads. We could provide a scholarship to, uh, for a low-income family to attend a Christian school. You know, are vouchers available yes. in, in yes. Indiana right now? Yeah, let's see what we could do to encourage a family that's struggling, that needs that extra support. All right? We could mobilize retired teachers. Those of you who uh, are listening to this recording did not see me stare at Marilyn Schultz. <laughs> This lady obviously has a lot of uh, energy. Is this lady a teacher or what? <laughs> uh, how about creating a homeschool co-op? Actually, I think some of you are involved in homeschool co-ops, right? I know Lisa is, and where, um, what's her name? Jenna, right? Jenna's involved in a homeschool co-op. You guys, you were involved in homeschool co-ops, weren't you? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. You know, the, the key thing here is Matthew 5. 14 through 16. We are. Let's, let's read this together, all right? Matthew 5, 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We have an incredible opportunity, an, an, an opportunity to be a blessing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a quote. Kim um, when, uh, Wren could not be here today. Uh, she is in Nashville. But I asked uh, a few of our educators to, that are involved in public school uh, to talk about their, their part, their observations about this. This is what Kim Wren said. Uh, she teaches music at what school? Yeah. Um, middle school, yeah. She does a great job. All right, here's what she says. Teaching in public schools is awesome. Access to so many young people over the course of years lends itself to a level of trust and relationship building like no other professional. How many of you remember teachers from your elementary school or high school years? Right? Well, it's also a daily front row view to cultural shifts. Challenging, ultimately, God has given me and placed me in these kids' lives to serve them and share what truth I can with them for as long as he keeps me there. I can hardly keep up with the cultural shifts, trends, lingo, but that's okay. 
I'm learning how to navigate the school terrain every day with grace, balance, truth, and trust in God. I pray for opportunities to share with them outside of school hours, and in coming years, once students have left my class, onto high school and beyond. I love my kids, and I'm so thankful for schools and the wells of potential housed in them each day. I trust God is working and using me to save some. So, well, I've asked Bo and I've asked Peter to uh, say a few words about their experience uh, in either witnessing how churches reach out uh, to schools or their own passion about their experience and work in public settings. So, which of you brave men want to go first? Bo. As far as uh, churches outreaching to Sharon Elementary, which is where I work, I've seen a couple different ways of going about it. Uh, We have a church right across the road, Abundant Life, and uh, I feel like they do a great job of just, uh, Kim mentioned, relationship building. And so they will uh, sponsor teacher luncheons during Teacher Appreciation Week or something like that. And they just come, a a team of them, and just uh, interact and we get to know them. And also uh, they'll give gifts and things like that uh, without, you know, any gospel messages or anything like that. But just to let the students and the teachers know that they exist um, and then they also and I believe this goes back to that memory of Christian heritage um, our superintendent is a Catholic and my principal is also Catholic uh, so whenever vacation Bible schools ask can we distribute a flyer for vacation Bible school um, it's always approved and Abundant Life isn't the only one. I think I sent out three different vacation Bible school flyers uh, this past week um, for the for the summer. So um, churches are taking advantage of that um, open door. So that's what I see. That's great. Tell them what you teach. I teach fourth grade, and uh, I could talk about that for a little bit, but I'll let Peter discuss what he sees. Sure. Yeah, I had a few things written down here. Um, As far as church partnerships go, we have two churches right across the street from Harrison High School uh, where I teach. One of them offers free breakfast to the students every Wednesday, and so that gets taken advantage of by um, (laughs) a lot of the students. Uh, And There's also another church across the street. I know some of you have have gone to this program before. They offer dodgeball on Friday nights, and they have a time of Bible study and worship. So a lot of students go to that, too, and it's kind of an open door right into the church. Um, We also have some individuals who aren't affiliated with churches. Uh, We have a woman who comes in and leads a Bible study one day a week, and we also have a pastor from a church who comes to work with some of our high-achieving students and teach them leadership skills. So um, that second one isn't necessarily... It's, it's more secular in nature, but they're also building a relationship with this pastor at the same time. So it's, it's pretty good. Do you want to talk about Sure. Yeah, one thing I like to do with fourth graders, I can't present the gospel, obviously, in class and that kind of thing, but uh, students know that I'm a Christian, and they, they'll ask me, uh, well, mainly the kids from our church that, that go there, I can strike up a conversation with them about, hey, uh, you know, something funny that happened at church last week, or the kids hear that, and then uh, it's just subtle 
um, reminders that I'm a Christian and they can approach me. I've got students in class that are, they, they go to church regularly and they're in musicals and things like that and they'll invite me. And the one thing I like to do is just encourage the students that are in my class and in other classes uh, to keep moving forward, you know, in church life and um, and just encouraging them in that direction, I think is the biggest benefit that I can have. Yeah, I teach at Harrison High School. I teach English there, uh, AP Literature and English 10. And actually, that's really similar to what I was going to say. A lot of what I'm able to do with the students is talk with those who I know are believers. And I try to do that openly to where other students can hear us talking. And that's that's opened a lot of conversations with students. Um, Another thing I like to do is we have a large portion of our students who go to USI and U of E after they're done, and I have seniors. So I am constantly encouraging them, you need to check out campus outreach when you get onto campus. If they're not a Christian, I don't tell them what it is. But if they are, uh, you know, I tell them that. Um, There's also an organization called Student Christian Fellowship that my wife and I support at U of E. They have one at USI that I know Zach and a number of other people here are involved in. So that's another way. Um, Probably my most insidious way is that I teach a lot of literature that has uh, biblical allusions in it. Uh, Like there's some plays and novels we teach that that mention different parts from the Bible. And so I probably go into a lot more detail about those than I should. Um, But that's one way that I found to try to interject that. In addition to that, the uh, I always tell my wife, Narnia series, I've read all seven books to seven years out of my nine that I've taught. And uh, so, like in The Horse and His Boy, whenever Aslan refers to himself in three different ways, I am myself, I am myself, I am myself, I say, you know, it's almost like he's three persons in one. It's almost like he's, what would you call that? I don't know. Uh, I think I know Trinity. Uh, Maybe so. Maybe so. So, good answer. And uh, we also, as far as outreach goes, we have uh, people that have free lunches and things like that that come and meet with students that are um, having a hard time with family. Teachers will recommend students that they think would benefit from having mentors from outside the school come to eat with them. And it's 90% of the time church members from Crossroads or Abundant Life uh, that just make time to meet with kids and, and talk with them. So that's also another open door. All right, so um, it is our privilege and it's our responsibility to encourage people who are involved in all different types of education to be salt and to be light and to encourage them wherever God has called them and to encourage parents wherever they have their children being taught now to take that role and responsibility seriously and to use that opportunity uh, to continue to shape minds and hearts, focus them uh, toward the God of all creation, toward the true source of wisdom. Um, I hope that this two-week session, which has been very fast, and you've been very patient with me, I I normally teach like a fire hose, just open up the spigot, just lots of information. Uh, I hope that it's been encouraging, I hope it's been thought-provoking, and I, uh, it's my sincere desire that if, you know, you have caught a vision at all of, uh, of how God might be tugging upon your heart to 
be involved more deeply and more effectively in education, that you would seriously consider how uh, our Lord might use you um, and to uh, take that effort, because I certainly think that it's worth it. Next week, we are going to be wrapping up our Contramundum series with um, what I believe will be an encouraging uh, lesson focused on uh, the grand and glorious promises of God and the equipping that he gives his people to be salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. So, let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you that you are indeed in control of all things. And we look at what you, through your people, have done over the years in difficult situations, whether it's being thrown to the lions or dealing with a population of children that are uneducated and living in poverty. You have done amazing things through your people. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to do that through those who are intimately involved in education, who th those who have been involved in, in the past. Lord, that that legacy and that memory would be effective. Lord, we commit this work to you, knowing that you will establish plans. Help us to be faithful to the things that you have called us to. That there would be a generation that is raised up, that knows you, that loves you, that extols your mercies, that understands that you are the God of all creation and that you are worthy of our praise and adoration. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to worship with your people in just a few minutes as we continue to learn of you and delight in you. We praise you in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.